0: Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan. Hello and thank you for joining us once again. Before we start, we just wanted to quickly invite you all to come and join us on social media and join in any discussions of any cases that we cover. So we'd love to have you over there and Just say a little quick hi to everybody that we chat to over on social media.
0: Um, I'm not sure if I've told you this, uh, but I've got rid of Twitter.
1: I heard in your episode, yeah.
0: Oh, I feel really bad that I didn't tell you, but yeah, I just... Oh, Oh, I've I've never
1: used it. I'm so useless at using it, so I don't blame you.
0: So we've come off Twitter. Maybe we'll go on to TikTok instead. Oh, Jesus Christ, I don't don't
1: think so. We are both far too old to go on TikTok.
0: (laughs) We've had this conversation before. We are way too old, yeah.
1: I've realised as well that I've been writing TikTok like what the clock says... And then somebody showed me that it's like T I C T I K or something like that and I was like, Oh, I've definitely been writing like TikTok like a clock.
0: It's not it's not for the likes of us, is it? Uh, but Bethan's right. Do check us out. So we have a private Facebook group uh, where you can discuss the cases and we go on there. We discuss cases quite a lot as well and interact with um, with the people on there. I think we've got nearly a thousand people in that group. So it's quite a busy group. And um, and yeah, come and join us on, on Instagram as well. We're nearly at 4,000 followers. Um, we're not really bothered about how many followers we have, but it just bothers me that it's nearly at 4,000, but not at 4,000. So, so, so... We're,
1: we're bothered, but we're not bothered, is what you're saying.
0: I'm basically, yeah, bothered, bothered, not bothered. Um, thank you uh, to Lisa for this week's episode because it features a case uh, which she sent over for a suggestion. So thank you very much, Lisa, for getting in touch with that case. Yeah, it's case. a case
1: I have wanted to cover for a little while. And when she messaged, it was around the 10 year anniversary. So it felt like a really good time to cover it
0: um yeah and as we always say uh we always try and cover your suggestions but we do get an awful lot so we, we i don't think we'll ever be able to cover every single one of them but um but i do love getting the suggestions through because quite often it's cases that we've forgotten about or that we weren't overly familiar with so please do still send them through and um we'll put them on our list uh, to explore further and hopefully cover one day
1: so when I began writing this episode, I had another horrific tragedy in my mind and I felt like I couldn't present the main case to you guys and to you, Mark, without kind of also touching on the 1966 Aberfan t- tragedy as well. And this episode is such a Bethan episode. it's It really, really is.
0: Great. So that means it's going to be a, like basically a mass tragedy.
1: It's going to be really horrific. I'm sorry. So, on the 21st of October 1966, the people who lived in the town, which was close to Merthyr Tidville, woke up like any other day. Miners working on a hill above the village headed off to work. Mums got children ready for school before heading home for their usual daily tasks, housework, shopping, cooking, and it was just a totally normal morning. That was until around quarter past nine when disaster struck. The school was filled with the town's school-aged children. There were just over 200 children who were at school that day, and they heard a sound that they later described as a jet plane flying closely above. But it wasn't a jet engine. It was an avalanche of coal waste that slid down the hill from the mountainside, cascaded over the town, ruined anything in its path, and buried the entire school building. In a matter of seconds, the landscape was changed. Buildings were gone. The school was no longer visible. Local pub owner David Evans ran into the street and later described what he saw, saying everything was so quiet, so quiet, all I could see was the apex of the roofs. Nearly 140,000 cubic yards of black slurry had cascaded down the hill. It was black quicksand burying everything in its path and when it hit the school it brought the walls to rubble and poured in through the windows. Pipes burst and water began flowing outside the school. And down the hill, the town began to flood from streams that were clogged with debris. The townspeople sprang into action, emergency workers and volunteers running towards the school, just trying to help, desperately attempting to dig their children out of the rubble. Miners rushed down from the mine where they had been working to help too, and bulldozers shoved debris aside to try and get to the children. And someone who was there that day said, A hush fell on the rescuers once faint cries were heard within the rubble.
0: Oh, God. I mean, th- this what? I mean, obviously neither of us was alive when this happened but you kind of grow up in the shadow of it because it's one of those mm-hmm. national tragedies that that never dies and it, it's continued to be talked about and featured in tv for example it was covered in an episode of the crown on netflix and they covered it really really well um but yeah it's just because children were involved it's um it's particularly tragic isn't it
1: yeah that's interesting that they did ha- have this in the crown because obviously that is a mostly factual drama um yeah. and this is such yeah. a major part of of her of her like reign really isn't it so yeah
0: yeah it was a national tragedy and and the queen needed to address the nation you know regarding this really and
1: she came under so much scrutiny for not going for so long and what the decisions were behind why she didn't go straight away but then when she did go she she really showed a really human emotional side didn't she say so,
0: which we rarely see from her
1: yeah Mm, interesting.
0: I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of the monarchy at all.
1: Mm, I don't, I think I'm a bit ambivalent. Like, I just don't, yeah.
0: That's interesting, because I would say most people are, it's quite, like, polarising. You're either really for them or really against them. I think um, I'm
1: a bit of a freak, though, Mark, because I can take you it or leave it when it comes anyway. to Marmite, and people are like, no, you have to either love it or hate it, and I'm like, uh, eh, it's pretty good.
0: I always said you were a freak. Yeah. To be fair, I have been saying that for about, Eight years, You've been saying it years. since we've known each other. <laughs> 2013 we met. Yeah. So I've been saying it for eight years. Yeah. There
1: we go. That makes me feel great.
0: Probably shouldn't have called one of my staff members a freak, but <laughs> that's how we rolled, wasn't it?
1: So there was a young journalist on his first major assignment there called Alex who was sent to Aberfan to report on the rescues and when he arrived it had been hours since anyone had been pulled out alive but nobody was giving up hope. People continued to dig. Horrifically, the total lives lost that day was 144. 116 of them were children, so half of the village's children had been killed. So this next part is from a BBC article because I felt like I couldn't describe what had happened very well because I didn't really know enough about it. So in simple terms, coal mining creates waste and the waste rock was dumped in an area called a tip. Merthyr Vale had seven tips and by 1966 the seventh tip was about 111 feet high it had been built eight years previously, it contained nearly 300 cubic yards of waste and it was... 300,000 300,000 cubic yards of waste, you are correct, that is a lot more It was precariously placed on sandstone above a natural spring which lay on the steep hill above the village. And as mining progressed, the heaps of waste grew and grew. In 1963 and 1964, residents and local officials had raised concerns about this seventh tip's location with the National Coal Board because they owned and operated the mine. And they were especially worried because this tip was located above the junior school. And they said, you know, this is attended by 240 students these concerns were really, really important, and they were reported to the coal board over and over, but they ignored them and basically made it very clear that you make too much of a fuss, we'll close the mine. And it's just which would have
0: been, you know, that would have been um, devastating—not as devastating as what went on to happen—but would have been devastating for uh, for that village, certainly. Yeah,
1: exactly. And these people needed the mine for their livelihoods. Yeah. So, on the 26th of October 1966, there was a tribunal set up for an inquiry into the causes of and the circumstances relating to the Aberfan disaster. The tribunal sat for 76 days, which was the longest inquiry of its type in British history up to then. It interviewed 136 witnesses, examined 300 exhibits, and heard 2,500,000, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Words of testimony, which ranged from the history of mining in the area to to the region's geological conditions and ultimately the blame was decided to lie with the National Coal Board. So the Aberfan disaster could and should have been prevented. It was obvious that the tip was unstable. However there was no legislation at this point dealing with the safety of tips. The specific cause of the collapse was a build-up of water in the pile and it was stated that the tip had actually had some small splides previously as well. The Aberfan Disaster Memorial Fund, which was set up on the day of the disaster, raised a huge amount of money, which was used to pay for repairs in the village and care of those who were injured and bereaved in the disaster. And the money also helped to pay for the removal of the remaining tips above the village.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. That's good to know that they did get rid of the others.
1: Well, they shouldn't have had to have, but they, they ended up having to do that because the National Coal Board were just being absolutely useless. So they ended up using it.
0: They sound like dicks
1: yeah national Dick board and the tragedy really sticks in my mind i think what you said it's not for me you know it's anybody in wales who who's got mining connections or there's not really anybody who's not aware of it but actually yeah for the rest of the uk it's it is a national absolutely horrific tragedy and then the national coal board paid out one hundred and sixty thousand pounds in compensation which was 500 pounds for each fatality Plus potentially money for traumatized survivors and damaged property. That was it.
0: That's appalling, isn't it? I get it was
1: the sixties, but money's not changed that much. That that's yeah. not disgusting.
0: No, that's not. That's a, that's literally just going to be a few grand, isn't it, in today's money? And it's always tough to have to put a price on on um, a person's life or loss of life. Um, but that is quite normal to have to do that in lots of different circumstances. But that is just horrific, isn't it? It's so low.
1: And the head of the National Coal Board refused to visit Aberfan and parents of children had to prove that they were close to their children to be able to receive that payment of £500. What the fuck? And then the funds for removing the tips, so those payments initially made by the Disaster Memorial Fund, were only repaid in 1997 and they weren't paid back with any interest.
0: Oh my god, so the, the National Coal Board only coughed up for that money like 30 years later?
1: Yeah. And it's a case that just makes me so mad but personally I didn't feel like there's enough to really craft an entire episode script from it. And that was until Lisa got in touch with this other mining case that I thought, do you know what, I can talk about how mad this case makes me and how how absolutely devastating it was. Half the children in this village died and the village were basically... Laughed at by the coal board, it's disgusting.
0: No, I'm really glad you've covered that because obviously you're going to come onto the main sort of element of, of today's case. But that sets a really good context. But yeah, I thought about covering it myself, but yeah, I don't think there's necessarily it's it's such a sensitive one as one. Well, I don't think there is enough material really, possibly because it was so long ago. You know, it's more than 50 years ago now, 55 years ago. So, um, so I'd kind of flirted with the idea, but I'm really pleased that that you've brought it to our attention.
1: Yeah, it's a case that I would hate to ever be forgotten from our living memories, so yeah. On the 13th of September 2012, a concert was held as a mark of remembrance on the first anniversary of a tragedy, and it was held at Blenavon's Big Pit. And so before we get into the events of today's main case, I thought I would mention this to you, because it's a really big part of my childhood, and I thought I'd share this memory with you, Mark, and our listeners. So... Big Pit National Coal Museum is an industrial heritage museum in Blaenavon, which is near where my family are from in South Wales and growing up I remember fondly a number of day trips to visit it. It was a working coal mine from 1880 to 1980. It was opened to the public in 1983 as a National Museum of Wales.
0: Was it any good? Because I imagine, well, actually, I imagine going to see uh, a former coal mine would be fascinating if you can really get down underground and stuff.
1: So, do you know what? I was too much of a pussy to go right into the actual mines because they do I have a lot well can... I'm terrified of being underground. I hate caves and, like, people who go potholing are mental, in my opinion. Yeah,
0: that I mean, caves and stuff. I mean, I'd have been... It's quite claustrophobic, isn't it? Yeah. It's similar to that. But, yeah, caves I couldn't do because I've seen enough, like, vintage 999 episodes on YouTube. That kind of show with Michael Burke from the 90s where people go into caves and get lost um but yeah i'd have gone down the mine to have a look um knowing that it was probably a lot safer since it'd been turned into a museum
1: yeah and the thing is is i should have been less of a pussy really but no didn't want to do that but even the bits that were above ground they'd have loads of really really interesting exhibits um like staged areas that would look like how it would have looked in the mines really 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 interesting Mining is a huge part of Welsh history and culture. In the 18th century, Cardiff became a major coal exporting port. The South Wales coalfield was at its peak in 1913 and was one of the largest coal fields in the world. And I don't think there's a family in Wales who doesn't have a family member who had been a miner. The nature of the job meant miners were this real band of brothers. And it's a wonderful thing to have and be a part of. But of course, when things go wrong, it, it probably hits home a lot harder
0: yeah, because that that job it was more than a job. It was, it was, um, it sort of defined the communities where a mine was. I would guess mm-hmm. so. Um, and it would have been a really dangerous job. And I suppose the wives of the men that would have gone down into the mines would have had that shared sense of worry. Yeah. Of what if something goes wrong? Uh, what if it's my husband? Husband, not husband, <laughs> uh, that uh, that has an accident and dies.
1: Yeah. And there won't be much in the way of happiness or lighthearted moments as we continue. So I thought like a little mention of me and my sisters and my cousins playing around, having fun at the museum would be really nice.
0: You painted such a lovely childhood memory for me. I loved it.
1: Thank you. It, along with St Fagans, which is another place, is somewhere that you'd kind of go for school trips or slightly educational days out. Really, really fond memories, except for the time that there were loads of wasps at St Fagans and that really upset me. But apart from that, really good fun however the concert in 2012 was a somber affair a piano was lowered 300 feet down into the mine shaft, and as reported in the South Wales Argus several dignitaries and special guests attended the concert including the First Minister of Wales and the local mayor the concert was a mark of remembrance for the lives that were lost a year previously in the Gleishan Colliery in September 2011. The morning of September 15th, 2011, was a normal one. The seven miners who worked at the century-old draft mine had worked together for a long time. They were not just co-workers who had been mining a long time, but they were practically family. So there was the mine manager, Malcolm Fifield, Charles Breslin, David Powell, Philip Hill, Gary Jenkins, Nigel Evans and Jake Wyatt. Malcolm Fifield was an experienced miner who had come out of retirement to try and revive the fortunes of Gleishon, and he was described as a hands-on boss, never forcing workers into conditions that he himself would have chosen to avoid. They all arrived at 6.45am, got into their grimy work clothes... And it was going to be a really big day for them. Explosives were being brought in to destroy a coal face 275 metres from the entrance. The purpose of this was to break through into old tunnels, connecting them together. So this was going to improve ventilation and prolong the useful life of this old mine. The conditions in which these men worked is, is almost impossible to understand, and especially so when you think... This was 2011. It was just 10 years ago. And sometimes we think of miners as being a thing of the past. But these guys were working in tunnels that were described as lower than a kitchen worktop. They had to crawl through them on their hands and knees.
0: It's mad. I can't. I mean, it sounds for me in particular, I hate getting my hands dirty. I'm like a Mm -hmm. born pen pusher. Um, quite happy in an office but yeah it sounds like a, a job from hell for me Um, and it's mad to think that yeah 10 years ago people uh, obviously you know you're going to come onto this awful tragedy but until that point they were just going about their business doing that job hundreds of meters below the surface of the earth digging coal out on their hands and knees it's just yeah Ugh, I mean I would have hated absolutely hated that job
1: yeah these men were so accustomed to this dank claustrophobic conditions. David Powell had once waded through flood water in Glacian up to his neck to salvage a pump when the tunnel roof had flooded down. I could not cope with that. Just your head above the water.
0: I think of all the health and safety stuff. We like when we worked together there was always health and safety type stuff, <laughs> rightly so. I know. And I have it all now. And like we're in an office and I just don't get it. I'm like uh, you know, all the stuff I have to sign off and then people can go down a mine and, and kind of nearly drown just to collect a pipe and that's sort of, well, they like, get away with it. The
1: fact that we had to put on those um, safety goggles to shred a card, oh, that <laughs> still God, sticks in my mind, that. given some safety goggles.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that was ridiculous. Yeah.
1: It's just interesting, isn't it? What, what some people are willing to put themselves through and what some people aren't willing, like I would not be willing to go and do this job I just couldn't so it's yeah no.
0: yeah fair play to them I, I've got like zero resilience in that kind of stuff so yeah like uh, massive kudos to them
1: and these guys were tough they weren't even like super young men Gary Jenkins was 39 Philip Hill 44 Charles Breslin was 62 Malcolm wow. Fifield was in his 50s and David Powell was 50 They did this job because being a miner was in their blood. It was their nature. David Powell's wife had described him going to work with his swollen knees and his swollen arms saying, we used to put cream on him, strap him up for work every day. And Charles Breslin had been drawn back to the mines throughout his life. He was working in the mines when he met his wife. Through their sort of married life together, he had loads of different jobs when the mines were closed and he would find alternative work. But it was mines he wanted to return to she said of him, it was what he knew. He got up early, he went to work and he never complained about it.
0: I think it just shows like how it's almost ingrained in your blood. And um, it's such an intense uh, work that they do that, that yeah, like those bonds are formed with the other colleagues that are down in the mines. And I kind of, I can sort of understand that camaraderie and how you would be pulled back to it time and again.
1: So this Planned explosion was set up and the seven miners split into two teams. So there were four men nearer to the explosion site and three men near to the entrance. At about 9am, the charges designed to break into the old central workings were detonated. A breach hole between two and three metres wide was created, but it was at this point that it all went wrong. Yes, the miners were used to working in horrific conditions and they dealt with water before when tunnel roofs had collapsed, but this was different. There wasn't just a little bit of water in a roof. Flood water engulfed the pit shaft after a retaining wall holding back a body of water failed. And within moments, cold, silt-filled, polluted water began to pour in. 3,000 cubic metres of water, so enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool, poured in and rushed towards the men. Jake Wyatt was one of the miners who managed to escape and he later spoke to the BBC about it saying we heard the blast but then within seconds you could hear I'd describe it as a jet engine we knew something had gone drastically wrong so I jumped on the belt and we both said the same thing run I remember crawling down and within about 10 yards or nine meters I fell off and I heard Gary behind me shouting run so I went back on the belt going like the clappers of hell I'd say about halfway down there was a walkway so I jumped off the belt turned around There was no sign whatsoever of Gary. There was no light. There was nothing at all. Jake realised he had no option but to keep going with the water roaring behind him and he managed to get back up the main drift before he collapsed exhausted onto the ground. The water literally stopped just behind him and it flooded the tunnel right up to the roof. He described it as looking into black ink.
0: I mean, this is, it reminds me a bit of, like, an Indiana Jones mm-hmm. uh, movie of a scene of Harrison Ford running through a mine. With that a big ball to,
1: behind him, isn't it? And it's yeah, like ball, yeah, ball.
0: yeah, that's it, yeah. I mean, that is just the stuff of nightmares, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Nigel Evans and Malcolm Fifield also managed to make an escape The three men stumbled out of the mine and raised the alarm and Fifield was rushed into hospital with critical injuries and ultimately he ended up spending a week in intensive care in hospital after the tragedy.
0: But he he was lucky to get out and to get away with his life and to only have spent a week in intensive care. I
1: know. So the press reported on this ongoing major operation to rescue the four trapped miners at the small private hillside mine It was kind of hoped that basically the miners who were unable to get out might have found refuge in an air pocket. Um, It's not unheard of. So the police, fire and ambulance crews were at the scene and and basically they just wanted to try and get in there and try and get to these men. Anxious family members rushed to the area and they were kept informed at a nearby community centre where they all gathered Alex Jenkins was 13 in school in class when he had a text from his mum saying was his dad Gary working in a mine and next he heard a helicopter flying across the school building towards the mountain next to where he was. He said later his mind began to race thinking okay there's mines on that hill there's a text about the mine come through you start adding two plus two together and not the best answers come back and indeed his dad Gary was one of the men that was trapped specialist dive teams were brought in who worked tirelessly to attempt to locate the lost men and they began this this painstaking work of pumping the water out of the pit as well not only were they trying to find the men they were also trying to drain this huge area so then these guys are going into something that's so so dangerous as well but despite these dangers that they were facing they just kept working to try and get to the miners by about 6 p.m Chris Margets of South Wales Fire Service said to the press that he was really hopeful and optimistic that these four miners could be rescued, saying that they'd been located approximately 90 metres underground down a 250 metre main route into the mine. However, there was no communication between rescuers and the trapped men. And at this point, the four men were named officially in the media as well. So a new diving team were brought in to kind of relieve the the others, and at 4am the following day they headed to the mine, where emergency services were kind of pumping the last of the water that they could get out. This new team consisted of five men who later described the scene that they arrived at as chaotic. There was still water coming in, roof supports were washed away, it was like, they said, a real mess underground, and they made their way cautiously in. They went about 400 metres, and then they got to the area where the incident had occurred. And it was at this part the mine, which was usually 700 to 800 millimetres high that is not high but that's how high it usually was it was filled with so much debris and silt that they had 150 to 200 millimetres of space to work in
0: so that i mean so they're literally gonna have to crawl on, crawling yeah or yeah like on their front on their bellies, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like half a foot isn't it or just over
1: <sighs> yeah and one of them said Later, you could see where the water would come up to. If you imagine someone who's got dirty's had a bath, when the water's let out, you get a line around the bath, and that was it. All above the line was all dust, and below that, the coal was shining. So they continued through. You know, like we said, sh- you know, shimmying through on their bellies, unsure if something else was going to come down from the roof. Water continuing to seep through. Eventually, one of the teams spotted part of a high vis jacket, and the team tunneled through the debris. But sadly, they found the dead body of Charles Breslin. He was found in an area described as the exit side of the body of water. So he'd kind of the emergency services reported they thought it was possible the team had been split and he was actually closer to the exit than his than his teammates.
0: And still, still couldn't make it out.
1: Still couldn't make it out. And in they had they been separated, but they hadn't found that hoped for pocket of air to hide in or. A, you know, a chamber to find safety. The worst fears of everyone in the rescue mission were realised when, by dusk on that Friday, the other bodies were recovered. Post-mortem examinations found that the men's lungs and airways were blocked with water contaminated with coal and silt and it emerged that the miners had died almost instantly which is at least some small relief, isn't it? Some small blessing. I I was going to
0: say, yeah, you can at least take some comfort in that because otherwise, can you? we've had situations across the globe before, like there were those kids in Thailand or somewhere like that, somewhere in the Far East. uh, They were trapped in a cave for a number of days and I think there was another one in Mexico, a number of miners were trapped uh, down a mine and it was like days and days and days and... Um, can you imagine that, that just awful feeling of desperation and needing to be rescued and knowing that you're running out of food and water and you are possibly going to die and it takes days for that to happen. So at least this was pretty much instantaneous for those four, but really sad because I, I don't know why I just really hoped that that they... Um, would have been found alive i know which is probably naive of me
1: yeah potentially but also is what is what you do at human nature this yeah that kind of what you were describing really reminded me of the essex lorry deaths the episode that you covered with where i wasn't here and that was just oh like you said the knowing the clawing at the at the door and the trying to scratch and Oh, it was just so, so mm. heartbreaking.
0: I think that it just, it's that real sort of human instinct to survive at all costs. So like the animalistic so even knowing, side, yeah, we're yeah. not
1: we're not any different to any other animal when you're in that no, situation. no the brain
0: stops the brain stops functioning and instincts take over so e- your brain would tell you that if you claw at a metal door that's sealed in a lorry that you you're not going to get anywhere but it's still your instincts will still not stop you from doing that um so yeah they were like claw marks and and all sorts that was written by a, a listener fantastic episode um she she put it so well together but yeah so tragic.
1: When Malcolm Fifield had reached the service, he had told paramedics they're gone, there's no hope for the others, before he was rushed off in the ambulance, and it really sadly was very true. The families of the men described the trauma of hearing that there had been an accident at the pit, plus this absolute agony of waiting for news, and they painted this picture for the press of four tough miners who loved the challenge and the camaraderie of working life underground. Lynette Powell, the wife of David, said that she sometimes felt rage at what had happened to this hard-working father and grandfather, saying, I get angry that he has gone and left us all. And Mavis Breslin, the wife of Charles, said waiting for news had been terrible, saying, It was never-ending, hoping and hoping that we would hear something. I miss him very much, and since Charles has died, the house has become empty. Alex Jenkins, who we mentioned earlier, said that after the initial text message, his mum came to the school and told him something had happened at the mine. And he said, I went to my grandparents. That's where we waited. I got no sleep for two days. My family were in tears. I was in my grandmother's house when I was told that a body had been found. I miss him more than anything. He always told me he was proud of me. I hope he still is. Proud that I'm trying to get on with life with him always in my mind.
0: That's just heartbreaking, isn't it? For a 13-year-old boy to lose his dad and for it to be such a shock it's not not like his dad had suffered from a long illness it was just a horrific accident Yeah. yeah
1: one of the rescuers who now runs uk mines rescue limited says he thinks about the disaster every year when the anniversary comes around and he was quoted as saying mining is a small industry so you tend to know people i knew one of the victims it's hard to put emotion out of it it's your colleagues a band of brothers you could say and I found that really interesting, you know, these were the rescue teams, but, and they were, I think the rescue team, I think they were coming from somewhere up north, not like too far up north, but I think it was somewhere like Liverpool or something, even though they didn't live in the area, he, he still knew people, you know, that's just, it's crazy, it really shows just how small the community is.
0: Yeah, that it spreads across the whole country or yeah. the whole of the UK, yeah.
1: And that's it. It wasn't just the mining community that was rocked by the tragedy. You know, the local people, of course, were as well. But as was the whole country, the question of how such a tragedy could have happened in modern day Britain was asked by everyone. This was the sort of thing that people thought was from centuries ago, not 2011 2011. So the Secretary for State for Wales announced on the 16th of September that an inquiry would be held and the investigation would initially be led by South Wales Police and then handed over to the Health and Safety Executive. On the 18th of October 2011... The mine manager Malcolm Fifield was arrested but not charged by South Wales police on suspicion of manslaughter by gross negligence. Following further investigations, he was then charged on the 18th of January 2013 with four counts of manslaughter by gross negligence. And the company which owned the colliery, MNS Mining Limited, was summoned for four counts of corporate manslaughter. So, who or what was to blame? None of the miners had reported any safety concerns at Gleishan, and Malcolm Fifield was known as a good miner, not someone who cut corners or took unnecessary risks. Indeed, he was a hands-on boss. He was down the mine at the time. He put himself in the same danger as his team. And as the trial loomed, at the centre of the case was one crucial question. Why did Fifield give the order for the coal face to be blasted when there were thousands of litres of water lying behind it? Three years after the disaster at the trial, Fifield told the jury, I have always been extremely careful. I take my responsibilities as a mine manager to a very high standard because of the serious nature of the industry. I do not take shortcuts. And he maintained that he had inspected behind the coal face on three occasions. The final time was just the day before they were due to do the explosions. He'd not found any water there. He said during the trial I inspected it three times and he was certain it was safe, that there was no water there. He said water must have migrated into the area through the porous sandstone in the few hours after his last inspection. The prosecution argued that so much water could not have gathered so quickly... And they claimed that Fifield had been told repeatedly about the water that had lain in the old workings for almost 30 years, but he had recklessly ignored the warnings and that the men should have been working at least 100 metres from the site, according to regulations, but three of the men were closer than about 60 metres.
0: I'm I'm intrigued to see uh, which way this is going to go. Yeah,
1: it's really... Because you can see this back and forth, can't you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's like... um... Uh, it's a really complex uh, set of circumstances as well. So unless you're an expert in that field, it's going to be... I suppose they would have called experts to explain it to the jury, but it's really hard for a jury to understand the intricacies of how mines work and all of this terminology and to know for sure whether water could have built up quickly or whether it would have taken days. So, um yeah, it's really, for me, as a kind of listening to this for the first time, it's really... Going to be interesting to know what the outcome was because I also feel for this guy, Malcolm Malcolm Fifield, isn't it? He, um, you know, he's lost he's lost a number of his men, and whether he's responsible or not, there's going to be a, a blame apportioned to him for being the boss, and he's going to feel guilty, and he's going to have that survivor's guilt as well, and he's going to be grieving for the loss of those men that he would have worked with over the years. Um, so, and and now he's on trial for bloody manslaughter.
1: This is it. So there was questions raised over why Malcolm Fifield hadn't formally applied to blast clothes, the old workings, which are often filled with water. But he argued he didn't need to because he'd been able to inspect the area behind the face. And then another issue raised was why the mine had not been visited for 16 months by the authorities when a check from that body should have taken place every year. So Tony Forster, the mines inspector for Gleischen, said it was not always possible to visit the pit regularly as small te- mines such as Gleishon tend to open and close as the price of coal rises and falls. So they kind of started to look at other things as well. It's not just him. Fifield's barrister claimed that investigators had become fixated within hours of the incident on the theory that he had recklessly ordered the blasting, even though that made no sense. Why would he have not only put his colleagues there but also himself at risk, he wouldn't have known that the water was there. So yeah, really, really interesting, like you said, to kind of see both sides. And in the end, following a three-month trial in 2014, both Fifield and MNS Mining Limited were both found not guilty of the charges put to them. So the jury in this multi-million pound trial reached not guilty verdicts after just 30 minutes of deliberation. Malcolm Fifield could hardly stand as the verdicts were returned. He broke down in tears, hugged his wife Gillian, and he was cleared of the four charges of manslaughter. And then the directors of MNS, so Maria and Gerald, they also wept as they were cleared of corporate manslaughter of the charges.
0: How, how do you feel about that? having sort of researched this. I mean, obviously that's the the jury's decision, so that stands. But I I feel really relieved that they were found not guilty, the the company and also Malcolm.
1: It's really, really difficult. Um, I think that, yeah, he wouldn't have put himself into that risk. I think with his background, there's a lot of stuff you can find on the internet about him and his background and his experience and his knowledge. And I genuinely think that he did check and he believed to the best of his knowledge and of his abilities that it was safe mm. um and i don't think he i don't think you'd put yourself and your men in danger like that it, he wasn't some you know young up and coming guy who wanted to make moves in the industry he had come out of retirement to do this to work this mine yeah. because he was asked to because it was his passion so yeah and he was incredibly
0: experienced and and you're right, it's not just that he wouldn't wouldn't have wanted to put himself at risk, but he wouldn't have wanted to put any of those men at risk. Um. So so I'm pleased, yeah, I'm relieved that he was found not guilty, but I could have seen it going the other way as well.
1: And it's, it's really sad, you know, that they were cleared, but this wasn't the end for Malcolm. Following his time in intensive care, he returned home. But ever since, he's suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. So for him, it is a terror at the sight or sound of running water. So a hillside stream, the tap in the bath relatives of and his friends say that he's a shadow of this hard proud miner that he once was and jake wyatt also has flashbacks he was really shocked when he was watching peppa pig of all things with his granddaughter and there was a waterfall on the screen and suddenly he was just back underground in the dark he said there was a noise like a jet engine he felt this torrent of water rushing towards him and he said of the flashbacks there's nothing you can do to stop that you don't get a warning it's instant it's there so you know it's not even just you survived or you've got survivor's guilt or anything like that they're really suffering
0: but I also think just going just I mean I say just but just being accused of manslaughter and having to go on trial a three-month trial that is that's probably enough to bring about post-traumatic stress well, disorder exactly, yeah. let alone yeah let alone the actual events that he went through I really feel for him
1: and it's not also the end for the families of the four men who died, so many of the families feel that justice hasn't been done, because after the trial found MS and and Fifield not guilty, the acting coroner for Swansea decided not to pursue inquests for the four men. So the 10-year anniversary just recently passed and a few of the people involved spoke to the BBC about their hopes for inquests. Two survivors of the Gleishan mine tragedy, Nigel Evans and Jake Wyatt, told the Wales Investigates programme that they thought their colleagues' deaths in 2011 had been swept under the carpet. Both men, along with relatives of the four men who died at Gleishan, are calling for an inquest to kind of answer some questions that have never gone away. Um, so Jake was saying that he had loads of memories that he'd locked away. He wants to get some results and some answers and, and properly have these people's deaths looked at with an inquest.
0: The, the only thing I, I, I kind of think with that is because it was, um, an, well, an accident, so it's proven to be an accident, not not negligence. So because it was an accident at work and there's four, four victims, it would have to be, the inquest would have to be a jury inquest, which is really rare. They only ever really have a jury at an inquest um in situations like this, if it's been some kind of like work related. Um, death or or something a bit bigger than that and they've almost already done that they've had a jury on the trial and the jury took 30 minutes to say this was an accident basically so I'm not I don't want to take anything away from the relatives of of those four men who died you know if they feel they need an inquest then I get it like then they need it but I can understand the decision making behind it because as far as The powers that be are concerned a jury has already deliberated over this and heard all of the evidence over three months and they ultimately by finding the company and Malcolm not guilty have come to a verdict of of accidental death which is probably then potentially what an inquest jury would come to.
1: This is it I think um, it's difficult because I understand that the families are really unsure and they want to know more but and Charles Breslin's Widow said she felt cheated of her husband in an inquest. Lynette Powell, who is the wife of David, said all she'd had was a temporary death certificate. So maybe there's more to it than just knowing. She'd kind of said that there was no closure, to not have an inquest and, and not have that was there was no closure. Um, but I see what you mean. I just don't know what else they're going to learn from this. They know the cause of death. They know the circumstances that surround it.
0: I do, I do understand where they're coming from. I'll never be in, I'm not in their position, so I can't fully understand it. But I of course, I understand that need for closure and things like a temporary death certificate. That's not acceptable. And also by not then having an inquest for these four men, it's almost like a lack of respect. Um So I can understand it's incredibly bothersome. But yeah, for, I can understand the intricacies of why potentially it's not been pursued. So
1: um, Alex who we talked about earlier said he planned to mark the 10th anniversary of his dad Gary's death on the 15th of September by going for quiet drinks with his friends just what his dad would have done but he said for him his need to get answers is inspired not just by his dad but also his grandfather Malcolm Jenkins who was a former minor who passed away in 2019 still waiting for an explanation for his son's death so I am going to be keeping an eye out as to whether or not these inquests are opened and just to see what what kind of happens around this?
0: Yeah, because we we've seen that uh, decades after uh, an incident like this, where they've then suddenly decided to, through campaigning that they will hold an inquest. So, yeah, it well, could. Well, at a Stardust nightclub. Yeah, that's um, what fire. I was thinking. So yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So there we go. Thank you for for listening today, everybody. And it's a bit of a different one, but I felt like it was a very Bethan case, not just because of the Welsh links, but be in a tragedy like this and you know potentially there's not there's no crime you know this from the way that the jury has deliberated and made a decision there is no crime it was a a horrific accident but some people Mm. still think maybe potentially there was so I thought it was very interesting one
0: yeah i think and we've covered ones before where technically you could say it's not really a crime but it's still true crime related because there was a trial and um a verdict was reached and it just so happened that it was not guilty but there was enough suspicion to um arrest and charge and and hold a trial so but yeah really really tragic case you know certainly um the 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 collapse of the mine, and I can't remember how you pronounce it, but in 1966, with, with all the children yeah, who Aberfan, died. Abafan, yeah. Abafan, that's it. So, you know, that's horrific. And, and so too is this. And perhaps all the more so because it's much more recent. And we thought maybe we'd put things like this in firmly in the past. So yeah very very sad for for all of them that are involved uh whether they died or managed to get out alive and, and certainly for their families too
1: so there we go thank you for listening and joining us and get in touch on social media in all the usual ways except for twitter and tell us what your thoughts were
0: yeah and we'll uh, we'll see you next week for another episode see you then